Hello, and welcome back to Bingeworthy, a podcast about all things television, streaming, what we watch, and how we watch it. Hosted by myself, Mike D'Angelo, and editor-in-chief of The Playlist, Rodrigo Perez, Bingeworthy helps you, the listener, keep track of it all, know what's what, and which of these many dozens of shows being released each week and month are worth tuning into. Okay, today we're discussing the true crime murder mystery miniseries, The Staircase, based on the much-buzzed-about documentary of the same name. The show follows the true story of Michael Peterson, a crime novelist accused of killing his wife, Kathleen, after she is found dead at the bottom of the staircase in their home, and the 16-year judicial battle that followed. The show premieres on HBO Max on May 5th and stars Colin Firth, Tony Collette, Michael Stuhlbarg, Sophie Turner, Dane DeHaan, Patrick Schwarzenegger, Parker Posey, Julia Pinoche, Odessa Young, so many more. Uh, after Rodrigo and I discussed the show, writer, director, showrunner Antonio Campos stops by to talk about why he had to make the series and shed more light on the story uh, of Michael and Kathleen Peterson. Uh, okay, Rodrigo, we've seen most of the series. We got the first five. What did you think of you know what we've seen so far? And have you seen the documentary as well? I have not seen the documentary by Jean. Oh, interesting. Z- Xavier de la Strada. Um, mm-hmm. I have not, and I hear it's really terrific. It is. Uh, yeah, I saw it back when it kind of caught fire on Netflix. It was originally like a Sundance thing, and then eventually kind of hit Netflix and took off. Like It crazy. must have caught like after the fact, because it's from 2004, and I don't think yeah. Netflix was like when things like kind of went viral or whatever on Netflix, like that was years and years later. Right. So I feel like it was right around the time the jinx dropped as well. Cause I was kind of going through a bunch of different documentaries. Well, that happens on Netflix, right? Like we, you'll hear on social media sometimes like some ancient movies all of a sudden trending and as number one on Netflix. Right. Yeah, exactly. So maybe that's what happened to it, but that's interesting. No, I did not watch it. Uh, I'm, I'm very curious to see it. It's a pretty fascinating series. And again, as we were talking in an earlier episode about Under the Banner of Heaven, like a terrific cast. Um, oh, yeah. This one's like stacked. A, just stacked with Colin Firth, Tony Collette, Rosemary DeWitt, Juliette Binoche, Parker Posey, Sophie Turner, <laughs> Odessa Young, Patrick Schwarzenegger, Dane DeHaan, and Michael Stuhlberg, among still some other names. Uh, I mean, that's, that's huge. <laughs> yeah. It and, is a jam-packed cast. Yeah. And then you've got, uh, I believe Antonio Campos directs most of it, right? Yeah, he directed six episodes and right. Lee Janik. To, uh, oh, to there you go. Yes, thank you. Lee Janik, who, who uh, is like a, a horror filmmaker who did those Fear, yeah, the Fear Street. Yeah, Fear, Fear Street trilogy on Netflix and also did, uh, I forget the name of it, but this indie horror um, before that with um, uh, Rose Leslie. Yeah, um, Honeymoon. Yes, yes. Thank you. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, she's good too. So um, I don't know what who I what episodes of, or who's done what. Most of the stuff I've I've seen, I, I'm assuming, has been Campos's. But yeah, it's solid stuff. You know, he's also got those good composers with him, Denny uh, Bensi and Sounder Durains. I don't, I don't know how to pronounce that. He's like uh, a Scandinavian or something. Um, <laughs> they're like indie art house, creepy scores kind of guys, and their stuff is awesome. They did Enemy by uh, Denny Villeneuve. Oh, did they really? Yes, they did the score to that, and nice. they've done a lot of. I mean, they did a that especially around that year. If you do like a Google search and look at say the two years after and the two years before and just the orbit around enemy uh they did 
all these amazing indie film scores that are really, really good, really subtle, but really amazing. And then they kind of disappeared and they've almost been working exclusively in television for a good five, six, seven years now. And of course, you know, I believe they already had worked with Campos. You know, Campos comes from the indie art house world. And uh, it's interesting that they're back with him on this too. Yeah, he got, it's really interesting. During the interview, he mentions that he got involved even before, like I think it had aired on Sundance. He somehow got them on VHS and then was in the actual documentary towards the end. Like he's in the courtroom. Really? Um, Yeah. Like he was so obsessed and involved with the story at that point that he he, he showed up in there just to kind of talk with the filmmakers and and be in the presence of of the whole whole thing so it's pretty crazy wow that's incredible that's way back in the day then because this it didn't air till 2004 so he must if that was the case he that's at least a year or two before that right or a year before anyhow because if it's still being made I don't it's even know some people like stay with projects that long and, and they really like sort of just like never leave their mind and eventually get around to it. Yeah. It seemed like this one was something that he had to get out of him. You know, it was, right. he was so intrinsically interested into it, in it. Um, and the show, like I'm, I'm someone who has seen the documentary mm-hmm. and knows the story, but between the performances from Colin Firth and Tony Collette and the supporting cast, the extra there's like extra information that's added beyond the documentary oh yeah there's some stuff that i don't necessarily want to spoil and i don't think hbo wants us to spoil um because you know obviously that's going to be a big kind of twist to the story but there's already like just people who have seen the documentary i had forgotten how many twists there were along the way in this story and it's just such a weird twisted version of it ultimately the dramatization of of it all makes you kind of emotionally identify with everyone more like even michael peterson but you really feel for his family more you feel for the even the attorneys so even if you've seen the documentary, I think it's super worth your time. It's a really well-made story that is already on its own very interesting. Well, let me ask you this, since you have a little bit more context than I do, having seen the original documentary and having interviewed uh, Antonio Campos, um, which we'll listen to coming up soon. But um, like, you know, the, the one thing that strikes me, not knowing very much about it, other than just having here that there was this famous case and this famous documentary, is how odd this Michael Peterson guy is yeah. and how kind of dubious and shady he is. But also at the same time, not dubious or shady, shady enough that you're like, oh, my God, yeah, he fucking totally did it. I mean, yes, exactly. no. There's like, this era of did he do it or did he not do it? And like, neither this- really answer that question. Yeah. And it's like ambiguous enough. And I, I, that's really the, the hook of it. Right. Like, because if we knew that it was him, then like, well, whatever, then there's nothing to it. But it's it's always like pointing to him. And then it, it like something shifts and points away from him. And it's sort of this vacillation all the time. Right. Where it's like, oh, yeah, he totally did it to like, oh, well, that's that's sort of like that fact or that whatever that piece of evidence really points to some sort of ambiguity that might you know exonerate him so is is he as weird and just kind of that strange person as he is in the documentary i mean obviously colin firth is just charismatic (laughs) like i don't think michael peterson is quite as charismatic as colin firth plays him but he still is very interesting he's a strange guy and he does have a charisma about him but it's just kind of odd He's, he's a bit off kilter, you know, and even like the, the documentary audience of it all, 
there's like a lot of interesting things. Like when you were saying all these things come up that, you know, kind of point away from him and then toward him and away from him. There's even more that come up beyond this because of the documentary. So fans got obsessed with it and started getting involved as well. And then there became this like owl theory of it all, where maybe it was an owl who attacked her. And we even mentioned this in the interview. And that's oh, something wow. that's a road that they go down as well. It's just like there's crazy stuff and, and offshoots that they go down. Oh, right. Because the, like there was supposedly something in the attic. Right. And, and then maybe the, the bat were like, right. Yeah. But, but maybe someone thought it was something else or something. Yeah. But apparently her body had like feathers in her hair as well and there was grass and all that stuff so it like became a thing where people were like these are owl claw marks <laughs> like it's like really is this what happened wow. i have no idea and no one ever wow. really definitively says i don't know how much further they're going to go down in the series because you know it has it has the benefit of kind of having a little more hindsight than the documentary had right we should just say to tee it up i mean like we might not have quite explained it but the case itself is about uh a writer who's convicted of murdering his wife and she was found dead at the bottom of a staircase in their home and Mm -hmm. she's kind of covered in blood and everyone's like how the hell did this happen from falling and i guess the show sort of like points to lots of different ways where that could have happened maybe preposterously and then points to ways that, that they couldn't have happened and and therefore pointing to him but there's just there's always enough ambiguity in it which is always good because that's just great for drama. And also Antonio Campos is his, his art films before that were always sort of played in that, in that lane um, that it keeps it really compelling. Yeah. And there's also a little wrinkle in here that isn't in the documentary that makes the documentary. It makes you look at the documentary very, very differently. I will say that much, but I will not say specifically what it is because it is kind of it. When I learned about it, I was like, Holy shit, this is kind of big information. So even if you have seen the documentary, there is quite a, an interesting uh, relationship at the center of the story as well. I will say before we get into the interview that he has a lot of interesting information, just being someone who was so involved with the, the case for so long. And also, like this has been in process for a while, like Harrison Ford was at one point attached to it. And we talk about that. So he been working on it. With him playing the Colin Firth role, yes. And, and Antonio directing it? Yes. I think I remember that from years back, which is insane when you think of like Antonio Campos, who's like, I'm not to discredit him, he's done, but he's done some like, you know, a lot of sort of small indie art house films. And then all of a sudden to be working with Harrison Ford would be like just incredible, you know? Yeah. I mean, The Devil All the Time had a really great cast as well. That's true. That's true. That got, that did have a pretty knockout cast. I guess I'm just like, I mean, I saw his debut after school in mm. actually his second film, but I remember seeing after school at the New York Film Festival in 2008. Like I saw that in, in real time as it as it came out and I was like, oh shit. And, you know, everybody at the time was like, oh, this is, this guy could be the new Michael Haneke. You know, he was very like, interesting uh, art house guy and and uh he's really evolved and grown and progressed and it's interesting to watch his career you know i've I've been basically watching it from the beginning it's a really interesting conversation uh once again for our listeners the staircase premieres on hbo max on thursday may 5th let's get to our chat with writer director showrunner antonio campos Yeah, 
I want to shout out right at the top. I know that's not what we're talking about today, but The Devil All the Time is a great movie, and it really stuck with me, uh, which is, you know, can be a rarity with some, you know, streaming movies that are, you know, they churn for short bursts and people forget, but that one really stuck with me and stood out. So I I loved it. Thank you. The first five were sent to us for The Staircase. I've watched those. I've seen the documentary, obviously, like many people. And yet it's still such a fascinating and really well-crafted story of Michael and Kathleen Peterson and obviously beyond that. So what was it about this story after seeing the documentary and hearing about it, reading about it, made you go, okay, there's more here you know, than just the documentary story. I want to bring this to the screen. I got to go back to 2008 because that's when it started for me. Um, 2008, I had my first feature come out called After School, and I was sent the first eight episodes of what is now a 13-part series. At that time, there was only eight, and I was sent those eight, and it was like a bootleg rip-off, rip DVD. And the producer at the time, he had the rights to make it into a movie and asked if I was interested, and I was. And uh, I never heard of it, at that point, even though I'd been out for a few years, it kind of was like, a, it had a cult status at the time. People were kind of passing it along from one person to another. And, and I watched it and I had never seen anything like it. I mean, there wasn't, now we take for granted, it's like, oh, well, there's just another doc, crime, true crime series. At that time, there wasn't anything like that. And so I sat and I watched eight hours of this thing. And I was like, this is amazing. I've never, I've never, um, one sort of had the, the ability to live in a story for that long like this, like, you know, the real story and, and the, all the different facets that I covered. But I was so fascinated by Michael Peterson. And despite having just spent eight hours with him, I still felt like there was all the stuff I didn't know. And I think that mystery had me leaning in from the very beginning. And the filmmakers were a, a huge part of the beginning for me because when I came on board, one of the things that was presented to me was that the, the documentarians have different opinions about what happened, that the producer and the director don't agree. And I thought that was amazing. I thought the idea of these two French people coming to Durham, North Carolina during the whole Freedom Fries era post 9-11 was just an amazing kind of setup for a story. And another, and at the time I was really interested in, in sort of the making of things. And I just thought that, well, this is a really interesting way in. And then over the years, I just became more and more sort of entrenched in this and to the point where I'm in episode nine of the documentary. If you go and you pause during Candace's fiery speech in episode nine of the documentary, there's this guy in the back with a big beard and a hair at the time uh, filming with a Blackberry. And that was me. And um, <laughs> I had been sort of trying to develop this over the years first as a feature. And then as the story just kind of kept getting bigger and bigger and more twisty and turny, it just realized that this, there's too many different facets to this thing that I can, then you can do justice in a movie and it needs to be a series and it needs to breathe. And that was it. I just, the story just kept getting progressively more interesting to me. And no matter what came out, it never did justice, in my opinion, to all the stuff that's there, you know, that all the stuff that's available. So that's, that's why I kind of became what it was, you know? Yeah. I'm curious beyond, you know, the documentary and, you know, the, the insight that you had there in the, <laughs> even being in the documentary, yeah. what you had access to as far as, you know, raw footage uh, yeah. that they didn't use or 
you know, people that are involved in the story of it all, obviously the family members, what did you have access to in making this? It's just over the years, I've gotten to know different people involved. It all started with, it all started with the filmmakers. And early on, I went to Paris to their production office and they gave me the keys and said, here, you know, here's the hundreds of hours of footage, go for it. And I asked them before I went in, I, I asked each one of them to tell me what to look for. And it was really interesting because each one pointed me to a, a piece of footage that kind of spoke to how they felt about Michael's innocence or guilt um, or the complexity of it. And I spent a week there kind of diving deeper into the, um, the, the outtakes, the raw footage. And there was a lot of stuff. I mean, I will say that they did, you know, I didn't see all 600 hours, but I saw a lot. And there was stuff that was really interesting that didn't make it. There was a few things that were really interesting that we've kind of brought into the series in a way. And it was kind of just, it was eye-opening because, you know, one, it, it affirmed to me that they did a great job because they really captured these characters. Like the way that the characters feel through the documentary is essentially the way that they were captured in the raw footage. And they sculpted it that in a way that felt honest to who they were. But there were still some really interesting uh, parts of the story that didn't get into the documentary that really informed our writing and also um, the character building that the actors were doing. Does the documentary end prior to where yours ultimately goes? Our series very much ends at the end end of the documentary. Got it, got it. 2017. Got it. Yeah. So did you, uh, again, have access to Michael or, or anyone at all in the I, family, or did you not want to approach them? We we've kind of we kind of took a approach, which was anybody that wants to talk to us, we'll talk to you. And, um, you know, we were trying to do a story that as was as neutral as possible. And so that's why we also didn't we didn't just rely on the documentary as a as a, a principal source. We also we also turned to Written in Blood by Diane Fanning, mm. which was very much written from the prosecution's perspective. And Diane had been in the courtroom throughout the trial and then. The book is really filled with a lot of great biographical information, but we had these two sources that we kind of went through, went to a lot. I, I would constantly, I earmarked the hell out of that book for a long time. But then over the years, I mean, I had the, pre, I had the ability to interview some people. And then when we really got going in earnest in the last two or three years, that's when it really kicks sort of like kicked up and revved up. And we did a lot of, lot of interviews and our, our researcher kind of just went out and interviewed everybody that he could talk to. I had avoided speaking to Michael for a very long time because I early on was worried that it would affect my perspective uh, on it and cloud my judgment in some way. And then after a decade or so, I was like, you know what, I'm I'm ready to do this. I, I'm not going to be swayed one way or another by him. And I'm just very curious to talk to him. And uh, we talked two years ago, a year and a half ago, and we talked a few times. And then uh, Maggie Cohn, uh, my co-showrunner on this, she spoke to him separately. And then Sebastian Silva, who was a consultant in the writer's room, uh, he talked to him and each one of us had a separate conversation and asked different questions and got a different perspective on him, but kind of all left feeling the same way, which is that Michael's kind of a mystery and it's hard to really pin him down. And he doesn't open up the way that you 
you know, that we, I think in general, want him to open up. He's, he's, he's not going to give that to you, but he, he does every once in a while have like little nuggets and he, he's a good storyteller and he can be very funny, but, uh, but yeah, so that I, I ended up talking to Michael. We ended up talking to Michael, but it was very late in the process. And then you get, you know, the cast that you get involved with this, obviously Colin Firth, Tony Collette, uh, Sophie Turner, Dane DeHaan, Michael Stuhlbarg is amazing in this. Um, Parker Posey. Yes. Um, I'm also curious. I know early on Harrison Ford was initially in the role and not to knock Colin Firth. He's amazing in this role, but you hear Harrison Ford is involved and you're like, what happened there? Did he ultimately have to drop out due to Indiana Jones or what was it? Uh, Yeah. I mean, Harrison kind of, Harrison was on board for this long period of time. Harrison was on board. He had gotten involved based on the pilot. um, And then we started to write. And then very soon after he got the call for Indiana Jones, which was always kind of in the background because we knew the thing with Indiana Jones, from what I understood was that it, had been a project that had started and stopped a lot over the years. I think mm-hmm. we've all heard that. And then this time it went. And of course it was like, you know, that's obviously that's what he had to do. Um, so there was never, there was no hard feelings. Uh, I had a wonderful time getting to know him. He's an amazing guy, but we pivoted very quickly to Colin and, you know, it was, I, I'm like so grateful for the time that I had with Harrison and I think Harrison would have been a very interesting Michael Peterson, but ultimately I feel very lucky that we ended up with Colin. Um, Great. Because Colin is, I mean, just a, a, one of the greatest actors, I think, of our generation. And I can't imagine anyone else playing Michael Peterson. He, he so fully kind of, he, he, he did this amazing job of transforming, but not doing an impression. And I think that's that's such a, an accomplishment because it's so easy to do an impression of Michael Peterson and Colin didn't do that. He like wrapped his head around this kind of mystery of a man and, and played him moment by moment. I'm curious because ultimately you have to, at some point recreate the crime in one way or another or several ways. It's gotta be a very interesting thing to approach because it's so well-documented. It's so argued over as well how laborious do you have to be there? How many takes and edits do you have to do? Or is that just like, we've got this down to a science and this is how we're going to do it. It was, it was a lot of time, you know, we decided the, the, the different depictions that we were going to explore uh, in the writer's room. And, and then when we got to Atlanta where we shot, we really honed in on the approach, which if you've seen my other films is very much in line with like the way that I've approached violence in Christine and after school and where it's certain reverence for what's going on and just kind of a distance and just allowing things to unfold and not trying to glorify it in any way, not trying to like making it feel as unmanufactured as possible, essentially, you know, giving you the sense of being a fly in the wall. It felt like once we landed on the versions, what we had to do was we really, we got very obsessed with sort of how these things could happen, how she would fall in certain ways, how she would receive certain wounds. If there was, if, if Michael was involved, like we had to kind of, we had to unpack that. And, and we went into our staircase, the staircase that we constructed on stage, which was modeled uh, off of the dimensions that we had taken of the real staircase. So we were working with something as close to, 
the real dimensions as anyone else could, besides the um, experts that had been studying the case back in in uh, the first trial. And um, we went there and tried to, to see how it could work. And Maggie would go and film herself in different positions. I would go and do the same thing. And we would go together and we kind of just obsessed about how this thing could have unfolded. And uh, and then once we got the choreography down in our heads, we then brought in the uh, experts with the stunt people and our camera person and, you know, started to, and the VFX, and then started to see how that would then sort of progress and evolve. And that's how we did it. And, you know, once we get the stunt people involved, it's really helpful because they can kind of go, no one would fall like that. You know, no one would, <laughs> this doesn't feel like, this is, and then, and you, you have the, um, you know, the ability with, with a, a trained professional who is trained to fall backwards or to hit their heads in certain ways that, um, that allow you to see how something possibly could have happened. So there was very little, I would say, like, ultimately, it's like we were trying to do as much in camera as we possibly could, you know, so that there wasn't a lot of editing to, to manufacture it. Obviously, your journey is a lot different than the journey of the, the documentarians. Mm -hmm. And I know they've had a lot of conversations where they've said if they could go back and give themselves advice, they just say, don't do it. Don't go there. <laughs> How do you feel as someone who's also kind of made this journey? Is this something that you're like, no, this wasn't too dark or this needed uh, uh, examining in a certain way? I feel like if, if you told me in 2008 that this would be a, a 12 <laughs> to 13 year process, I would. I wouldn't have believed you, but I think, I think I wouldn't have believed you and just kept going and um, I would do it again. I mean, it's almost like I, I felt like I, I started down a path with this and I had to see it through. And I feel like it's an, it's, it's so interesting when you work on a project for this long, because you change, I mean, you inherently just change over those years of life changes, the things that you're interested in change. And I think that I feel very lucky that, it didn't happen as a film a decade ago um, because I think the person I am now making it is a more interesting one. And that the version I made of it is the version that I always meant to make, but I don't think I could have made then. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of as, as frustrating and as at times as it was to kind of constantly trying to be pushing this up a hill and, getting people um, interested and excited over the years at different points, it all felt like it took ex exactly how long it should take. Regarding, you know, all the wild theories are out there, are there any that you buy into, like the owl theory? Do, do, you, do you even want to pay mind to something like that? Or is that something that's very oh, yeah. valid to you? We do. I mean, it's coming up. Um, and you've obviously seen, you've obviously seen uh, the first five. Uh, so it's coming up a little later in the, the series. It's very important to the series because it's very important to certain characters in our series. And that's partially why it's something that we we felt obligated to explore. And I also have to say that, like, when I engaged with the owl theory, I went on the journey that, with that that I think a lot of people do. And I think it was very interesting. And I, I think it only speaks to the complexity of this case that even if you ultimately don't buy into it, the amount that you engage in it says a lot. Like even if you, there's, everybody has a moment with the owl theory where they go, huh, all right. And the fact that you can go, huh, all right about that, I think 
only speaks to how kind of complicated this whole thing is. Just to quickly pivot to some some other things you've been involved in, uh, you've had a long storied producing career as well as a writer and a director and all these things. You were at one point producing uh, or or looking at potentially directing the first Omen. Is that still the case? And and where is that? No, I developed that for I developed that for like I forgot if it was two years. David Goyer. Uh, the company was producing along with Kevin Turin. It was set up at Fox and it started off as a spec script that I then uh, worked on with the Hayes brothers. And then from there I worked on with Gillian Flynn. And then ultimately it just been, it had been a long time with the process project and I was really focused on this and a couple other things. And it just it didn't feel like the thing to do anymore for me. It just wasn't, it wasn't uh, my passion anymore. And I think we had gotten the script into a really cool place and the way where we were going with it was really subversive and cool. And then now there's a new director on. And I think um, I'll have to have to look into who it is, but I, because I, I don't know if it's announced yet, but they've brought on some really cool, uh, they brought on a really cool director. And I hope that she does it because I think that she could make a really cool version of it. Very um, cool. Her own stamp on it. And I'm sure the script has changed. It's well, like, I, they are giving me the wrap with you. I want to just thank you again and tell you how great the show is. It really is, even as someone who knows the story, very, very intriguing, very well made. And for everybody that's listening to Staircase, it's HBO and HBO Max on May 5th. Antonio, thanks again. It was great. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it, man. 